We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. All right, we'll turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 11 will be our text. Earlier this year, Apple aired a commercial advertising the iPhone's new unsend feature. If you send, yeah, that's right. That's right. It's exactly right. Because if you send a text to your friend and you end up regretting that text, all you have to do is send, hit unsend there on your phone and poof, it vanishes from, from your friend's iPhone. And this commercial demonstrated just how powerful this unsend feature can be. It opens with a guy standing in front of a kitchen counter, looking incredibly dejected. And the reason for his palpable dejection is that laying there right in front of him on the counter is the lifeless body of a pet lizard. After a brief moment of just staring at the lizard, the man summons the courage to pick up his iPhone and send a text. This is what the text says. I messed up. Leon is dead. As you're watching the ad, you're sort of piecing this together, right? This guy is, is pet-sitting for a friend. And Leon, the pet lizard, has died on this man's watch. Like, if you're pet-sitting for someone, this is like worst-case scenario. But in the split second, after the text goes out, you hear the little iPhone noise, the whoop sound. The guy notices something. Something is happening. The, the lizard's leg moves. Did Leon just twitch? And suddenly, at just the right moment, Leon springs to life. Leon is alive. And this means that this guy gets to unsend the text message. He gets to take back the announcement about the death of a beloved pet and the friendship between he and the pet's owner is spared. Now that ad is quite striking. It's striking to me anyway because it essentially tells a resurrection story. Within a brief snippet of time, the span of just a few moments, the ad tells the story of a relationship that is saved at the last moment by a resurrection. The text is unsent because Leon is not dead. And this kind of thing is, is something we see all over the place in our culture, not just in our ads, but in the literature we read, in the shows we stream, in the movies we watch in all of these things, the stories that we love to tell and to hear are so often shot through with the theme of resurrection. Just think about war movies for a second. What happens in almost every war movie ever made? Whether it's Saving Private Ryan, Hacksaw Ridge, more recently, 1917, what do all these movies have in common? 
And each of them, we see either an individual or a group of soldiers being baptized into an environment of death. On a battlefield where bullets are flying past your head and the ground underneath your feet is soaked in the blood of your fellow soldiers, the untold horrors of death are all around you. And yet through many toils and snares, through many close calls and much pain and loss, the individual or the group of soldiers heroically emerges from the environment of death, having bested their enemies. And in so doing, they triumphantly complete their mission. Why do we love that so much? Why do we find resurrection stories of this nature so compelling? Why is it that we just cannot get enough of this kind of thing? Well, I want to suggest to you today That as Christians, we know why. We know the reason. And the reason is this. That the story that gathers us today is not just a resurrection story. It's not just one resurrection story among many others. No, the story that gathers us on this Easter Sunday is the resurrection story. It's the story of which Apple ads and war movies are mere copycats. Because this resurrection story, the story that we gather today to to remember and to celebrate, this story is the great hope of all the earth. In a world where nothing seems to make sense. In a world where children can show up to school and be murdered on a Monday morning. In this kind of world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is welcome news. It's the news that every human heart is aching to receive. And so today, there is nothing more important for us to consider than the meaning of what the angel said to those followers of Jesus who came to the tomb early that Sunday morning. What they heard that day is what we need to hear above everything else. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. This is why Paul writes as he does at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Would you read the text with me? Beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, 
as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. These verses are situated at the beginning of a section in 1 Corinthians where the question being addressed is really straightforward. Is there such thing as a resurrection from the dead? Are the dead really raised? That's what Paul is writing about. Like what we said a few moments ago in the Nicene Creed, that we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the world to come. There were some in Corinth who were beginning to ask, is that actually true? Is there actually a resurrection? Is this really something that we could look forward to? Well, they weren't so sure. And this is because they were being influenced by certain Greek intellectuals whose philosophy denied the very idea of a resurrection. They liked the idea of the immortality of the soul, right? That, that immaterial part of a person's being. They liked that. But the resurrection, not so much. We see this in the book of Acts, chapter 17, where Paul is proclaiming the gospel in the city of Athens. Geographically, Athens was not terribly far from Corinth. And Athens was known as a center for Greek philosophy. And so Paul shows up there. He preaches the resurrection there in Athens. And what do the people do? How did the Athenians respond? Well, they mocked him. They made fun of him. They laughed to his face because they thought his message about resurrection was patently absurd. So needless to say... When it came to the notion that anyone can be raised from the dead and given a new body, these Greek philosophers were highly, highly skeptical. And it was this way of thinking that had begun to infiltrate the church at Corinth. Skepticism about the resurrection of the body was beginning to spread among the believers there. In fact, it had spread to the point that some people... We're going so far as to say there is no resurrection. So because of this, Paul knew it was something that had to be confronted head on. There were resurrection deniers in their midst, which is another way of saying that there were some in Corinth who had reached the point of denying the faith. They had repudiated the very gospel that Paul had preached to them. So for Paul, this was far too important to ignore. He had to address the issue. So starting in, verse, or in chapter 15 here, verse 1, what Paul does is he gives three pieces of evidence for the resurrection story. He outlines three reasons 
to believe that Christ is risen. And the reason that Paul does this is because this is the basis from which he will argue for the resurrection of the body. So let's trace Paul's argument here. Look with me at the first piece of evidence that Paul gives. It's the reality that sinners are saved and transformed. Verses 1 and 2. They tell us that Paul had gone to the city of Corinth. He had preached the gospel there. People in Corinth heard what Paul was preaching. They heard his message and they believed. They believed the gospel. And as a result, they were transformed. And so Paul is basically saying to them, Hey, listen, since some of you guys are so skeptical about my message, let me remind you of who you were when the gospel found you. You were dead in your sins. You were far from God. You were without hope in the world. But now look at you. Look at what you've become. Look at who you are today. And this is a little bit of a flex for Paul. It's his way of saying that if the message of the resurrection is such a joke, then how do you explain your transformation? If you think about it, that's actually a pretty good argument. Because Paul was reminding them of something that they could not deny. They simply could not deny the effect that the gospel had had upon them. They could not dismiss the fact that it had come into their lives and changed everything. Years later, Paul would write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians and tell them that through the gospel, Christ had made them a new creation. The old had passed away and the new had surely come. And Paul's saying all of this because what he wants them to see is that what lies at the heart of the gospel that transformed them is the story about an empty tomb. The gospel is only powerful to change lives if the Savior is indeed risen. Which means that the message of the gospel must be the message that Christ has been raised. That there is, in fact, a resurrection. But of course, if what the Greek intellectuals, if what they were saying was true, that there is no resurrection, then there is no gospel. Because a dead savior is no savior at all. Paul will say later in chapter 15, what Pastor Matthew said just a moment ago, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. It's pointless. And really, this is Paul's great argument for the resurrection. Just, just follow his logic. If the resurrection is a hoax, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then his death was not a sacrifice for sin. And if his death is not a sacrifice for sin, then we're in big trouble. Because we are still dead in our sins. But praise be to God, that's not the story. That's not how the story goes. No, our salvation tells a much different story. Like if you are trusting in Christ today, if, if your life has been transformed by him, then you are living proof that the story is true. That there is a resurrection.
from the dead. And yet that story did not begin in Corinth, let alone with us. It didn't start with Paul. Believe it or not, it didn't even begin when Jesus came out of the empty tomb on that first Easter Sunday. Now the story that gathers us this morning begins much earlier than that. It's the story that has been unfolding since the very beginning of time. This leads me to the second piece of evidence that Paul gives, which is the witness of the Old Testament scriptures. Look back at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised according to the scriptures. So here Paul is reminding the Corinthians of what it is that he preached to them. This is the actual content of Paul's message. And what we see is that when it came to this message, Paul did not mince words. He was not one to beat around the bush. In the field of journalism, the one thing you never want to do is bury the lead. Burying the lead is what happens when a reporter fails to emphasize the most important part of a news story. Well, in these verses, in verses 3 and 4, Paul is essentially saying, hey, I did not bury the lead. No, Paul delivered to them what was of first importance. And what was of first importance for Paul consisted of three things. The first thing is that Christ died. The reason this is important is because all of us have sinned. And therefore, all of us have come under the just, right, and righteous wrath of God. We deserve to be condemned for our sins. That is the plight of every human being that has ever walked the face of this earth. But what Christ did is he stepped in. He took our place. When he went to the cross, he took upon himself the condemnation that we so deserve. In his death, he absorbed the wrath of God in our stead. That's what Paul means when he says that Christ died for our sins. He died for sinners. The second thing Paul mentions is that Christ was buried. On the cross, Jesus did not swoon. He did not pass out as some have claimed. No, to clearly demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt that Christ was actually dead, his body was laid in a tomb on Friday and it stayed there until Sunday morning, at which point he was raised. This is the third thing that Paul mentions, that Christ was raised on the third day. And this was his great vindication. It was God's way of saying that the death of Christ on the cross was a satisfactory and complete payment for all our sins. Charles Hodge, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, says that these three things that Paul mentions are the great facts on which Paul insisted as the foundation for the gospel. 
What Hodge is saying there is that in Paul's mind, the, the, the all-consuming center of the Christian faith, the, the all-consuming center of the message that he proclaimed is the cross of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the empty tomb of Christ. And yet even as Paul insists upon these three things, he mentions something else. Two times he mentions something that we need to carefully consider this morning, which is that the death and resurrection of the Lord, it didn't come out of nowhere. These events did not transpire in a vacuum. No, Christ died and was raised according to the scriptures. This was an important aspect of the good news that the apostles preached, that the finished work of Christ is the culmination of a plan that was unfolding throughout the Hebrew scriptures. What God had been saying to Israel through the law and the prophets, it all reached its fulfillment in Jesus. This is a major refrain in the New Testament. The New Testament authors viewed this as a compelling piece of evidence for the truthfulness and authenticity of the gospel. I'll refer back to Charles Hodge. He says in his commentary that the death of Christ being predicted by the law and the prophets is the constant doctrine of the New Testament. This is something we see over and over again. Luke 24. The risen Christ meets two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he rebukes the two of them for what? For not believing what the Old Testament says about the Messiah's death and resurrection. Something we see in the book of Romans as well. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that the law and prophets bore witness in advance to the gospel that he proclaimed. Then there's the book of Hebrews. Which is all about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And what I find so interesting about all of this is that Paul more or less just kind of takes it for granted here in 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, at this point, if I were Paul, I would have maybe quoted Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 or or Genesis 3.15. You know, one of the passages that clearly predicted that the Messiah would suffer and die. But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't quote a passage like that. Instead, what Paul does is he says very generally and not so specifically that the finished work of Christ happened according to the scriptures. Why? Why, Paul? Why not give us something a little more concrete? Why not give us some specific examples of what you're talking about? Well, I believe that Paul's lack of specific examples is quite intentional. It's a carefully calculated move. Paul wants the Corinthians to see that the story of Christ's death and resurrection is not merely something that is mentioned here and there in the Old Testament. It's not just that there were scattered bits and pieces about it hidden in the dark corners of your Bible, just waiting to be deciphered. No, instead... What we must see is that this gospel 
that we're talking about this morning. It's what the Old Testament is all about. It's the story that God has been telling all along. Everything in the Hebrew scriptures, everything in the law and the prophets, all of it points to Jesus. Listen to how one commentator puts it. He says, Paul did not quote a half dozen proof texts from the Old Testament, which predicted that the Messiah would die and rise again, though he certainly could have done that. Instead, Paul shows that the Bible he had known and loved as a young man was like a story in search of an ending. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the ending was now revealed. The finished work of Christ is baked into the law and the prophets. It's in the warp and the woof of the Hebrew scriptures. The entirety of the Old Testament begs to be fulfilled by a resurrection story. And for Paul, that's a powerful piece of evidence for the truthfulness of the gospel. That throughout the history of Israel, there have been echoes of the message that he proclaimed. That Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ on the third day was raised. It all happened according, in according to the scriptures. And yet Paul's argument doesn't end there. Not only is the story of the resurrection authenticated by our salvation and transformation, not only was it predicted by the witness of the Old Testament, but it was also verified by the many people who saw Jesus after his death. With their own two eyes, they saw him. They saw the risen Christ. And this is the third piece of evidence we see in our passage. That the risen Christ appeared to many. Verses 5 through 11. Paul gives us a list. He, he lists who some of the people are who saw Jesus. There's Peter and the 12 disciples. They saw the risen Christ. Members of Jesus' own family saw him, right? Uh, Paul mentions James, who was the, the younger half-brother of Jesus. Paul even tells us that, and, and this is very compelling, he even tells us that over 500 people saw the risen Christ at the exact same time. The point is, the resurrection story that we believe and proclaim, it does not want for eyewitnesses. The resurrection story cannot easily be dismissed as mere fiction. It cannot be downplayed, as some have done, as a mass hallucination or as a flat-out lie. No, there were hundreds and hundreds of people coming out of the woodwork eager to tell the world, this is what I saw. A man who was publicly killed. I saw him alive, walking around. I heard his voice. Very likely, out of all these witnesses, out of all the people who were willing to testify to the story of the resurrection, the most compelling among them was Paul himself. In verse 8, Paul calls himself to the witness stand. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, 
Christ appeared to me. If you know anything about Paul, you know about his background. Some years before he wrote this letter to the church at Corinth, Paul was convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was just another dead messianic imposter. Paul was the most hardened skeptic you would ever meet. In fact, Paul felt so strongly about all of this that he made it his life's mission to destroy anyone who dared contradict him. Verse 9, Paul says, I persecuted the church of God. That's who Paul was when Jesus found him. He was a persecutor. You might even say he was a terrorist. We see this in the book of Acts. In chapter 7 of Acts, we see Paul as a staunch supporter of the first Christian martyrdom. Chapter 9, we see him going from house to house, terrorizing Christians for their belief in the resurrection story. And all of that just goes to show that Paul was Christianity's most ardent opponent. And yet look at verse 10. He mentions the grace of God. By God's grace, he says, I am what I now am. Paul just flat out says it. I don't deserve to be here. I'm the last person in the world that you would think would be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, I was a violent, hate-filled persecutor of the church. But even at my darkest, even when I was doing my worst, even when I was spewing hatred against Christ and his beloved church, the grace of God found me. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Friends, only the grace of the risen Christ can explain a transformation of that magnitude. Think about it. The gospel's fiercest persecutor became its most ardent messenger. It suddenly happened. He, Paul did an about face. And Paul wants everyone to know why that happened, why that is. Paul says it was the grace of Christ through and through. Which leads him, all of this leads him to ask the question that has been occupying him all along. Verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ has been proclaimed as raised from the dead, how then can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Paul has set forth the evidence. He's made his case. He's even taken the witness stand himself. And so now it's time to render a verdict. That's what the story that gathers us this morning demands. It demands a verdict. But not only does it demand a verdict, it ultimately demands a response. Like if all of this is true, if there really was a man from Galilee who claimed to be the savior of the world, and if that man is truly raised from the dead, then the most important thing about you and about me is how we respond to that. So the question for every one of us today is how will you respond? If the verdict is that all the evidence points to the fact that there was a resurrection, then what is your response? 
if you permit me, I would like to offer three marks of a right and true response to the resurrection story. Three marks. Tremble, tell, and trust. Tremble, tell, and trust. Let's look at the first one. We tremble as we rejoice in the risen Lord. Paul's main concern for the Corinthians was that they would become resurrection deniers. This was the great danger in Corinth that that the people there would be lured away from the truth of the gospel by skeptics and doubters. Now, I want to be clear. There may be some among us here today who are wrestling with this. You're wrestling with skepticism and doubt, and we hope that what you have heard is persuasive to you. But on the whole, I am inclined to think that that's not the primary danger we face at Emmaus. The most of us face a danger of a different kind. When it comes to the verdict about Christ being raised, the danger for us is not doubt, dismissal, or outright denial. No, the danger is dullness. If I had to put my finger on it, I'd say that we are tempted time after time to grow dull in the face of this resurrection story. I mean, think about it. How many times have you heard this story without it disrupting your life in any real way? When did those words that we just said from the Nicene Creed last cause your heart to melt that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate? He suffered and was buried. The third day, he rose. Emmaus, what does it say about us that those words can leave our mouth without arresting our souls? The Nicene Creed continues by saying, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Those words are not a nice hallmark card sentiment written in pastel colors surrounded by pretty flowers. No, those words are a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call for the church and for the world. Those words are written in the blood of your Savior upon the tree of Golgotha. It's staggering, friends. Absolutely staggering. This news that we have that the tomb is empty. This is the thing that no one was looking for. This is the thing that, that no one was expecting. Just think about the response of those who were first to find out about it. The Gospel of Mark tells us that some of the women who followed Jesus during his earthly ministry, they went to the tomb early on that Sunday morning bringing spices to anoint the body of a dead man. But what greeted them? The stone was rolled away. And someone was there to tell them at the entrance of the tomb, he is not here. He is risen. Come, see where they laid him. Do you see a body there? And Mark tells us that when these women heard these things, they fled from the tomb because fear and trembling had seized them. Friends, it is good and right for us to rejoice in the resurrection today. 
It is fitting that we be glad that our Savior is risen. But I can't help but wonder something. I cannot help but wonder, could our rejoicing afford to have more trembling? Perhaps our gladness could afford to be accompanied by fear and astonishment, the the kind of fear and astonishment that causes your jaw to hit the floor. Maybe, just maybe, we need to be seized by fear and trembling. The The other thing we see wherever the resurrection story pops up is that people go and tell what happened. That's a major refrain in the stories. Go and tell. So that's the next mark I want to mention of a right and true response to the resurrection story. We tell the resurrection story far and wide. Matthew 28. In this passage, we see what happened at the tomb did not stay at the tomb. The angel tells the women who came on that third day, he tells them, go and tell the disciples that Christ is risen from the dead. And then Matthew says that they quickly departed from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. Friends, this news of the risen Christ is meant to be shared. We are called to behold the empty tomb, yes, but true beholding never leaves us loitering. There is a no loitering sign out in front of the empty tomb. No one who sees that that tomb is empty stays at that tomb. No, when your heart is seized by the staggering, unexpected, surprising glory of the resurrection, you will not be able to keep it to yourself. You'll want someone to hear what you have heard. You'll want someone to see what you have seen. Friends, this... This story is not just for you and for me. It's not not just for our private relationship with Jesus. No, this is a story for anyone who will bother to listen. We have the greatest news in the world to offer. We have the greatest story of all to tell. It is ours to make known. So how could we ever keep this to ourselves? How could we ever withhold? What we have to give. After all, this is what Jesus has done. He has not withheld from us what is his. He has kept nothing back for himself. But he freely gives all grace to sinners like you and like me. And this brings us to the third mark of a right and true response to the resurrection. We trust... That what is true of Jesus will be true of us. What this means is that if you're trusting in Christ, his life has now become your life. If you're trusting in him, his death has now become your death. If you're trusting in him, his resurrection is now and will be your resurrection. What I'm telling you is that if you have faith in Christ today, you are so united to him that his story has now become your story. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. He says, if we have been united with Christ in a death like his... 
we shall certainly be united with Christ in a resurrection like his. What Christ underwent in his resurrection, friends, is our future hope through union with him. When first light dawned that Easter day, Christ emerged from the tomb with a new body, with a body that that transcends the constraints of mortality. This is precisely what will become of us. When first light dawns on that final day, what we can scarcely imagine will become our lived experience. We will emerge from the grave. Our bodies newly alive and invincible because all that corrupts us will have been wiped away once and for all. Sin will no more defile us. The devil and his hosts will be forever destroyed. The pains of this life that so grieve us will give way to a heavenly bliss. And the song we will sing on that day as we dance upon our graves will be death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So next time you hear or read or watch a resurrection story, remember this. Remember the resurrection story. And let it remind you of the glorious news of the grace that you've received in the Lord Jesus Christ. That whatever is true of him will be true of you. If only you will trust him. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we believe We believe that you are alive. We confess on this Easter Sunday that the tomb is empty. The grave could not contain you. Death could not defeat you. And so we ask that this truth would land upon our hearts afresh today. Lord, you've you've not kept the blessings and graces of your resurrection to yourself. But you have generously lavished those blessings upon us by your free grace, so that we will become like you on that final day. It's in light of that day that we now live, and we hope in you alone, Lord. All these things we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.